0: Right, welcome everyone to another excellent event run by the Middle East Centre at the London School of Economics. It gives me a great pleasure to welcome you to the celebration and indeed the promotion of a special edition of the Journal of Intervention and State Building. My name is Toby Dodge and I teach at the London School of Economics, but much more importantly, I'm joined by three authors of this special edition. Um, Ruba Ali Al-Hassani from Lancaster University, Ibrahim al Mashar um, Murashi from California State University, San Marcos, and Shamiran Mako from Boston University. I'll introduce them all in a minute, but uh, they're gonna each speak uh, for about seven uh, and at the most 10 minutes, and then there'll be Q&A. If you could type your questions in the chat box, that would be great. Don't be shy and start typing as soon as you want. Um, Please note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. If you want to tweet, you can do so at hashtag LSE Middle East. Now let me introduce to you The three speakers, this is a special edition of a journal, so there are another, uh, there are a series of other speakers, uh, other authors that will describe. Firstly, uh, is Shamiran Maka, who will speak first. She's a assistant professor of international relations at the Pardee School of Global Government at Boston, and I think most thanks go to her. It's her idea to um, to launch this special issue, uh, special issue of intervention and state building. She brought us uh, together in a wonderful weekend in Boston and then oversaw our drafting of the uh, papers. She wrote two papers herself for it. She co-authored Evaluating the Pitfalls of External State Building in post 2003 Iraq with uh, Alistair Edgar. And also, she singly authored Subverting Peace, the Origins and legacies of debarthification and she'll speak to that in a minute. Our second speaker is an old friend of LSE and mine, Ruba um, Ali al-Hassani, who's a postdoctoral research associate at Lancaster University's Department of Politics, Philosophy, Religion and the Project CPAD and she's looking greatly forward to translocating to Lancaster and enjoying uh, the wonderful culinary delights of England and the sunny weather. Uh, Ruba's research interests include sociology of law, transnational justice. She taught sociology at her alma mater, York University, and she completed a PhD at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. And last, but certainly not least, is, is, is Ibrahim al who's an associate professor of history at California State University at San Marcos and a visiting professor at the ie university of school of global and public affairs at madrid and spain that's where he's speaking to us from and he's the co-author of uh, iraq's armed forces and analytical history and that wonderful book that we've all read he helped update uh, the modern history of iraq with phoebe mao in 2017 so each of our speakers will speak for no more than uh 10 minutes but hopefully seven and i'll hand over to Shamiran Mako to introduce the special edition and uh, to introduce her own paper as well. And then we'll open up for Q&A, so please do write your questions in the chat box. And to remind you, we are celebrating the launch of the special edition of Intervention and State Building Journal, which is 15.4. Uh, Shamiran, tell us all about it.
1: Thank you so much, Toby, for that really generous introduction. Um, and I want to thank you for um, hosting this event at the Middle East Center at the LSE um, and for being with us here this morning. And Nadine, and Safi, thank you so much for organizing all the logistics. You, in so many ways, made all of us come together. Um, as Toby mentioned, the special issue at the center of today's event is a product of a workshop that was held at uh, the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University in spring of 2019, where we collectively came together and we looked at questions, uh, uh, we tackled questions surrounding peace building, transitional justice, and state building in post 2003 Iraq in the way of kind of taking stock of both, in some ways, some of the successes, but most notably some of the failures and challenges of this kind of 18 year time period Um, in the ways in which it affected various elements of political development in the country. And so the special issue, um, which as Toby mentioned, was recently published with the Journal of Intervention and State Building. And I wanna thank the editors um, uh, for making and bringing the special issue to fruition, critically evaluates and takes stock of state building and peace building failures within the context of democracy promotion through foreign imposed regime change. And much of the questions from the workshop really centered on this. um, You know, what happens when you have uh, democratization that is top down imposed through foreign imposed regime change, and what are some of the legacies that we see of some of the challenges in early state building and institutional building. In addition to the papers that are presented here today by my colleagues and contributors Toby Dodge, um, Uh, uh, Ruba al-Hassani and uh, Ibrahim al-Marashi. Marcin al-Shamri also contributed a fantastic paper on the role of the hausa and religious elite within the context of peace building and divided societies. And Zahra Ali contributed another fantastic piece on the ways in which the NGOization of civil society in post 2003 Iraq has impeded uh, state building and peace building. In the introduction, as Toby mentioned, that's co-authored with Alistair Edgar, titled Evaluating the Pitfalls of External State Building in Post-2003 Iraq. We examined both micro and, and macro and micro-level processes that impeded the formation of a functioning state and a durable and unifying political order, really in many ways, and being able to curtail the resurgence of violence. And in this way, I'm looking at what has transpired over the past 18 years and in situating Iraq within other uh, post-conflict state-building and peace-building efforts. We argue that securitized state-building impeded bottom-up and more localized efforts at maintaining peace following democratization. Um, And we also argue that expedient and incongruent state-building under the CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority, as as the main occupying power, produced a weak and highly fragile Uh, state institutions susceptible to ethnic elite capture. Um, And in this way, you have the kind of fragmentation of the coercive apparatus, which makes the state effectively incapable of successfully claiming monopoly over the use of force within its territory. In this way, the overemphasis on post-conflict reconstruction, neoliberal economic restructuring, and the institutional and political reforms that were designed to kind of uh, maintain peace and stability failed to create parallel peace-building institutions. And at the same time in the introduction, we know that um, as a foreign invasion and occupation, um, there was an over-reliance on the narrow group of uh, both dissident elites and exiled elites uh, within the country. And that much of American state building efforts in this way and within this context, suffered from multiple and overlapping crises of legitimacy that set the path for re-emergent authoritarianism. And in that way, really heightened the propensity for perpetual and pervasive cycles of violence leading to conflict and fractionalization. My own contribution, I'll briefly touch on, and I'm happy to take um, uh, questions and comments in the Q&A. My own contribution centered on this question of lustration um, as an instrument of transitional justice in post 2003 Iraq. And I focus on uh, debathification as a form of lustration and, and as a policy of lustration. And what's interesting in my research is the question of debathification and lustration had been considered as part and parcel of the state building effort in Iraq even before the early the, the early 2000s. Um, in June, 1999, the US Central Command sponsored the Desert, Desert Crossing Seminar to identify, assess uh, risks, threats and opportunities and possible outcomes of an American invasion in Iraq. This recently declassified document, part of a core of its state building kind of scenarios that had been proposed focus on the question of um, the role of exiled elites um, and the Iraqi opposition, and in it really question the potential legitimacy and capabilities and popularity of external opposition groups working inside of Iraq in hopes of instituting regime change. Why is that important? Much of the questions surrounding and illustration were envisioned at the time as potentially being um, as having challenges, given that a lot of both dissident Iraqi elites in the country and exiled elites um, didn't have much legitimacy amongst um, the masses, and so as it was argued, and in my article "Subverting Peace: The Origins and Legacies of Debathification in Iraq," I then focus more specifically on what happens once debathification is imposed, in both in the lead up to and following regime change, and to do that, and, and to kind of as part of the um, uh, the process. I illustrate that exclusive and unconstrained de, uh, lustration through debathification created an institutional mechanism that targeted and excluded key segments of the population as perceived regime collaborators. And in that way, debathification is a form of lustration within kind of larger discussions on transitional justice and peace building uh, during the important transitional period really subverted uh, both the implementation of transitional justice and peace uh, and building. And in that way, and much of the outcomes of the bathification stem from the fact that bathism poses systemic dilemma for democratization and state building in both the pre-war planning and the post-war uh, uh, planning um, of the invasion and occupation. And um, in much of the kind of lead up to and then following the occupation um, and kind of more common uh, post-conflict settings, illustration is seen as the institutional and political and legal framework Uh, that determines the extent to which members of the ousted regime can be prosecuted or reintegrated or entirely excluded from uh, post-conflict governance. Um, And specifically, the article focuses on uh, on orders one and two, which are the main kind of constitutive orders of debathification. And I argue that the disproportionate influence yielded by a narrow circle of Iraqi, both exiled elites and dissident elites in the lustration process, Made it susceptible to ethnic elite capture, resulting in both its deep its, its politicization and deinstitutionalization as an instrument of transitional justice. Um, and in this way, I argue that debathification actually created the political opportunity structure for institution for institutionalizing exclusion by key stakeholders from governance at the onset of the critical phase of the transition, immediately in post two thousand three two thousand three two thousand four, and then afterwards. Um, and I focus on two uh, elements within this bigger question. Um, first, I, I argue that the extensive reliance by American policymakers on a narrow circle of previously excluded um, dissident elites and then expatriate elites uh, impeded the design of an autonomous and multi layered legislative and judicial institutional vetting process. And in that way, it resulted in the ubiquitous purging of former Bathists across various ranks. Um, the disproportionate impact this had on Iraqi Sunni Arabs, for example, signaled signaled to the community that their status had been relegated to that of persona non grata, which crystallized the community's intransience toward then accepting the emergent political order. And second, the absence of parallel cross-communal national reconciliation and peace-building initiatives really intensified this inter-ethnic distrust of foreign and post-democratization. And in that way, that in and of itself heightened fractionalization and exclusion At the onset of of the transition, Um, oftentimes what makes Iraq unique in comparison to other illustration programs that were instituted in both Eastern and Central Europe and the kind of post communist transitions in South Africa um, and in uh, um, Chile, Argentina, and in post war Germany is that you have this multi layered process that has judicial and judicial oversight mechanisms that trickle down from either the federal level to the provincial and to kind of even local districts. Um, And the idea behind these mechanisms is that they are meant to act as an institutional check on the ways in which lustration policies are are, are implemented. Um, And in the case of Iraq, we see both exclusive lustration and exclusive lustration absent this multi-layered legislative oversight process that really impeded its application as a tool of transitional justice. Um, I'll stop there and I'll take up um, some of the key findings and more of the findings, substantive findings in the Q&A, which I'd be more than happy to discuss, but I'll leave the floor um, up to um, our next participants. Thank you so much.
0: Many thanks, Sharon, for uh, explaining um, the uh, the special edition itself and also for outlining your uh, chapter in it. Ruba, tell us about your paper in the special edition. Thanks.
2: Thank you. Um, I'd like to start with a quote from Neil Gaiman where he says that stories are webs, interconnected strand to strand, and you follow each story to the center because the center is the end. Each person is a strand of story. And I like to think that this quote has a lot to do with my paper because uh, the paper examines how integrating storytelling-based practices such as restorative justice dialogue and restorative education within Iraq's legal and educational systems uh, can promote an inclusive Cross communal public discourse and facilitate bottom up and inclusive peace building practices. To this end, I use social constructionism uh, to discuss how storytelling can be very um, helpful uh, in Iraqi peace building. Uh, both um, storytelling and social constructionism are based on an interactionalist model. So there's the self and there's an other who can be a listener. Uh, The story is the means through which we construct meaning uh, and shape perception, as well as establish a sense of self and identity. And um, therefore, stories and storytelling uh, include subjective realities. The self and the voice are part of the story. And so um, storytelling demands an audience, a listener, an engaged listener is part of the storytelling process. Otherwise, it's just a story waiting to be told and heard. And storytelling can generate positive and negative uh, relationships within communities. It can bring people together, or it can intensify social cleavages. And this is why there are uh, there's constructive storytelling and destructive storytelling. And since 2003 in Iraq, the top bottom approaches to peace building and state building have been largely focused on destructive storytelling. Uh, Destructive storytelling is associated with coercive power, uh, which is power over rather than power with. with, um, Exclusionary practices, a lack of mutual recognition, dishonesty and a lack of awareness. Destructive storytelling sustains mistrust and denial. It also rationalizes an assimilationist position that subordinates particularities to to dominant prototypes. And in the Iraqi context, um, there has been a lot of destructive storytelling uh, among the political elite in particular, uh, pushing uh, and and a false sense of reconciliation, indulging in the illusion that uh, that the people have put the past behind them and trying to impose a forgive and forget mentality and escape accountability. There's also um, an empty reconciliation, which leads to the exclusion of a newly constructed other. Um, So there's a lot of othering taking place, uh, dehumanizing and degrading uh, stories uh, that are being used uh, by the political elite. There's also the push for tolerance. Um, as opposed to solidarity and uh, tolerance may lead to the resurgence of conflicts from the, uh, from now and then, uh, which is what we're seeing in Iraq. And debathification, which Shamiran has discussed, uh, is based on um, the othering process and uh, negative or destructive storytelling. Um, and it has also poured into other policies by the government, such as uh, the establishment of the Iraqi Special Tribunal. The special tribunal um, was the one where Saddam Hussein was tried, and there was a sense of accountability to an extent uh, by holding some uh, former Ba'athists accountable. However, it did not engage in the most constructive type of storytelling, and it was not uh, accompanied by restorative practices to restore social bonds. Instead, what we have seen is the complete opposite, where people uh, have been divided further. Constructive storytelling, on the other hand, is inclusive and fosters collaborative power and mutual recognition. It creates opportunities for openness, dialogue and insight a means to bringing issues to consciousness and a means of resistance. Um, so this uh, social, constructive storytelling, when done right, brings people together, it emphasizes a humanization of the other as opposed to their dehumanization. And a number of emotions arise from this which I discuss in my paper, I can't go into great length here, but uh, restorative storytelling or constructive storytelling can be um, at the core of restorative justice dialogue and restorative education. Restorative justice dialogue um, has a framework that consists of harm as an organizing principle, personal accountability in response to harm, inclusivity, agency and volunteerism, and a non-directive facilitation. So people are not coerced and brought together at the same table. In fact, they're invited and they're active, engaged uh, agents who are willing to listen to each other's stories and account uh, for their uh, responsibility by acknowledging it and aiming to rectify the harm. Restorative education is also rooted in in constructive storytelling. Because storytelling is existential, so are the law and education. Uh, They are the means to cultural production and to articulating society's history, social dynamics, and vision. Uh, They shape how society sees itself and how it sees others. Therefore, the law and education are transactional. Those in positions of power can wield them to their advantage. And so we see this in legal and scholastic pedagogy, whether in uh, the law and politics in documents like the constitution, which overlooks some pockets of Iraq's population and assimilates them into identities that are not their own, therefore erasing their uh, stories and imposing dominant ones on them. Uh, And in scholastic pedagogy, where textbooks can erase parts of Iraq histories. So constructive storytelling would instead Um, include mutual respect between the educator and the student, uh, participation, self-determination, humility, and uh, transparency. And um, pedagogy that engages in in discursive um, and structural dislocation, interrupting the hegemonic narratives and the status quo uh, is necessary, as it resists the reproduction of hegemonic narratives and covers power relations and open spaces for voices suppressed in educational curricula and legislation, enter the October Revolution 2019, where storytelling was at the core of the mobilization process. So we've seen people um, use a hashtag and a slogan, "Riadwatan," or "We want a homeland." This used constructive storytelling because it crossed ethno confessional identities and socioeconomic classes. Um, storytelling was done through chants, slogans, poetry, performance, song, and graffiti along Tahrir Tunnel, for example. And because storytelling demands an audience, the internet blackout that was enforced in the early stages of the protest made protesters feel unheard and silenced because suddenly there was no audience, especially no international audience. Um, Another hashtag and slogan and arm of the movement was man qataladi, or who killed me. Not only were people uh, calling for the accountability of the corrupt, but they were calling for accountability specifically for those who uh, killed protesters and uh, uh, journalists and activists. And this is why we need to respond to people's uh, calls. I can't, we cannot propose a purely restorative model or a purely punitive model, because people want different types of justice that um, align with their different truths. So I don't propose a particular hybrid model in my paper, but I do discuss why we need a hybrid one. So we need one that incorporates restorative justice dialogue, restorative education, and as well as prosecutions that are restorative and penal in nature, where they place victims and victim impact statements and truth-telling and constructive storytelling at the core of the process. And so in conclusion, we need to tailor a model, a hybrid model, to serve a bottom-up storytelling-based process uh, that is restorative to ensure peaceful and meaningful reconciliation in Iraq. Thank you.
0: That's excellent. Thank you, Ruben. I'm, I'm sure I and others will come back with questions. But before that, we come to Ibrahim, who, if you can see him, is right at the bottom of that very large lecture theatre um, in Spain, when you can see the sun shining through the window. So, Ibrahim, tell us about your paper um, and what it means for Iraqi politics today. Thank you.
3: Okay, very good. So... Well, our previous uh, presentation started off with a more profound quote. Nonetheless, I I think it's profound, but I want to quote the anonymous reviewer who helped shape the uh, direction of this paper and uh, can really help not only uh, situate this paper with what's uh, current events in Iraq today, but also the comparative aspect. Uh, This reviewer asked that, I should in the paper draw out broader points to reach an audience which is not only interested in Iraq. Ideally, your text should speak to authors willing to draw lessons on US state building and security sector reforms. So having said that, let me try to do that while addressing the paper and then using this paper for kind of a uh, jumping off point to bring this kind of to conclusion, what are the broader lessons we can draw from American securitized peace building uh, so let's of course uh, the example I did was uh, particularly I towards the end I'm gonna kind of compare the fate of the Iraqi military to the fate of the uh, military in Afghanistan but what uh, the common factor in the comparison of both those militaries never mind uh, kind of the temporal uh, Similarity, 2001 and 2003. Uh, So the key uh, theme of this paper is securitized state
2: building, securitized peace building. Peace building in
3: normal circumstances, when I say normal circumstances, when the fighting has ceased, is difficult enough. And if anyone
2: has been following the events in uh, Bosnia, here's one case in point where the 1995 Dayton Accords
3: stopped the civil war where violence ended. But in terms of security sector reform, uh, we still see the challenges very recently, where now the Republika Srpska is not letting the government—that that is the federal government of Bosnia's army and police and intelligence services, deploy in the Serbian administrative area. Very similar to the uh, situation between the the military of the central Iraqi government and the Kurdistan regional government. That was the difficulty of security sector reform in a particular place where the violence had stopped. Iraq and Afghanistan are two examples of reconstituting a military anew while a conflict is continuing, ongoing, okay, in the face of an insurgency. And this is what my paper sought
2: to address was to document to chronicle uh, why this effort was doomed to
3: fail to begin with. Uh, Using that dynamic, which uh, Shamiran uh, Bako discussed, but specifically applying it to the military, the exclusion of one particular, and now in this case, this is ethno-sectarian exclusion, because of course, it's not only the Iraqi Sunni Arabs, but the uh, Iraqi Sunni Turkmen's as well, who were... uh, basically uh, excluded from the new Iraqi military.
2: And thus uh, jumped a couple of years later, would have incentives to join the
3: various insurgent groups, ISIS being one of them. So I'll just read the uh, the main thrust of the paper, and then I will jump towards the uh, final uh, concluding points. So when we're talking about American securitized peace building, along with Shia and Kurdish political elites, excluded members of Iraq's Sunni demographic, both Arab and Turkmen who had served in the security sector under Saddam Hussein, without a strategy for their disarmament and reintegration. This excluded demographics, still possessed arms and military training, and revolted post-2003 against the new military, undermining its elusive monopoly on the use of force and provision of public security. According to the analytical framework of Andreas Wimmer, political exclusion fosters the mobilization of individual and collective actors who are driven by their desire to get a more favorable balance of exchange with the state and gain access to the public and private goods at its disposal. Thus, exclusion deprived the new Iraqi state of political legitimacy amongst these disenfranchised Sunni communities who contested the post-2003 state-building effort by mobilizing as insurgent groups, including ISIS. While ostensibly insurgent groups sought legitimacy in the name of combating a foreign occupying force, an underlying rationale for their recruits was to undermine the new system that excluded them from state patronage due to their sectarian affiliation. So I will, to take that, and now let's uh, apply it in a kind of a broader sense, uh, post-2001. This article sought to draw lessons beyond Iraq on security sector reform, peacekeeping, and state building. The declaration of the global war on terror two decades ago led to American interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq, resulting in unintended consequences. Securitized state building led to the U.S. reconstituting armed forces in both nations anew. Institutions that failed to deal with the security vacuums brought about by the American invasions. Rather, the U.S. intervention led to the persistence of violent non-state actors, rather than the ostensible aim of eliminating terrorist groups and their affiliates. In Afghanistan, the Taliban endured endured, and Al-Qaeda became diffuse and branched out into Iraq after 2003, evolving into ISIS. More than two decades after 2001, these non-state actors persist. As of 2001, the Biden administration sought to extricate itself from both states, leaving in doubt the ability of American trained militaries and existing militias to contain the Taliban or ISIS. And I remember sending this off uh, a week before Kabul had fallen. And this is where I will conclude.
0: Excellent, thank you all three for keeping to time and let me once again draw the audience's attention to the special edition of the journal and intervention the journal of intervention and state building fifteen four, which all these and and uh, some excellent papers are published in I suppose I have a couple of questions before uh, I open the floor but if you have in the audience have questions please send them via the chat function we have some Already, so uh, please send more. Now, it strikes me from all of your presentations, and I may be misconstruing them. So please tell me if I am um that in a way that this is a lessons learned exercise. And if the lessons were learned, then this could have been done better, or the ab- abject failure, which I think shamaran and Edgar detail very well in their first uh, paper, could somehow have been avoided or lessen. So in Shamaran, the the, the purging of, 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 of the bath, but also they're, they're pushing through punitive justice, a victor's peace, if that was avoided, or the securitization of state building, if that was avoided. Uh, for Ruba, if, um, if different types of storytelling had been more positive, more inclusive, would that have steered this intervention away from failure? And in, indeed for Ibrahim, if ethno-sectarian exclusion had stopped or hadn't been pursued in the armed forces, this somehow would have avoided the, uh, the catastrophe catastrophe unleashed on Iraq's population after 2003. So that, that's my question. So you're all suggesting things could have been done better. And I think that's clear part of your. But if those things could have been done better, could this have been either less destructive? less costly for the Iraqi population, or could it even have been a success? Shamia.
1: That's that's such an important question. Um, And I think in the introduction, To the special issue that I briefly presented on earlier, we really focus on and compare what happens in Iraq with other uh, examples. And so we look at, for example, what happens when there is lack of coordination, you know, inadequate actual planning in terms of logistics and providing security on the military side, in, in this case, the DOD. Um, the kind of incoherence and policymaking, actually, even in the lead up to the 2003 invasion between the, the State Department and the DOD um, um, as two kind of main entities. And we look at the question of what happens when there's no logistical support coming from, uh, you know, more internationally sanctioned interventions and peace building operations like those that uh, Ibrahim uh, rightly mentioned in the case of Bosnia with a Dayton peace agreement, East Timor, Kosovo, uh, and or Sierra Leone. Um, and what we find is that in, in with Iraq diverges in a couple of ways. And that on the one hand, there is this kind of lack of coordination and direct consultation with policymakers on, you know, through multilateral institutions, including like the UN, in thinking about what could have been planned better logistically, and in terms of even military operations and coordination between the DOD and the State Department, um, and at the same time, we find that um, some of the, um, you know, the, the ways in which Iraq deferred is from other cases is that there was this almost complete overhaul, and that complete overhaul then actually led to a hollowing out of the state. Um, and this, in the sense, varies from the cases that I mentioned before, and that's not to say that you know it, it, the counterfactual would be if things were done exactly, you know, in the more kind of coordinated, logistically sound, um, you know, policymaking uh, with things that have been better. You know, I I, I don't know. Um, we don't engage in that counterfactual, but what we do note is that Iraq is exceptional when we look at the ways in which coordination, planning, logistics. Really, in many ways, actually ended up having a counter effect in that um it created this security dilemma and a security vacuum in the ways in which the state was hollowed out um, in comparison to other contexts. Excellent. Well, wait a
0: minute, Ru, before I come to you, because I know you've got a lot of questions. I just want to follow up with Shamiran on that. Now um, you argue that the state the the, the the policies deployed by the CPA, by Bremer, and, and the follow-up hollowed out the state. And obviously, I have a great deal of sympathy with that. But whenever I present that argument, they uh, the, 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 critiques, the critics of that argument, and indeed the current ruling elite who don't want to take any blame for the hollowing out of the state, say, oh, no, you've got that wrong. You're being too soft on the Barthas regime, and especially the period after 19." 91, the application of sanctions, the impoverishment of the middle class, the asset stripping of the state under. So there is some blame on the Baathists and there's some blame on the sanctions regime. So if you could just defend or put the counter argument. And then, then there's another question that I think I'll ask to all of you that's come uh, from Agita in the Netherlands. So you. Um, Shamran, you've placed in that first chapter, and I think Ibrahim has placed in his paper, Iraq in a much wider intervention example. But what's unique about Iraq? What sets it apart from the wider literature that you're looking at? First Shamran, then I'll come to Ruba. Thanks.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Toby. I think there's a couple of things. One, um, there is, as you rightly mentioned, and it is this tension, right, in the ways in which we think about the role of expatriate elites and dissident elites inside the country. And I think in some ways what makes Iraq unique is that, you know, we often think of 2003 as, you know, an end point in and of itself, that this is where the kind of regime change actually happens, which it does, you know, on a policy level. But that, you know, the envisioning of a post-Bathus era had been in the making, as you rightly noted, since the 1990s, and especially since 1991, with the formation of different opposition groups. In related research that I'm pursuing, I've come to um, the interview and gain the insights of some of these uh, members of these dissident groups and opposition groups and exiled Iraqi you know, elites in, uh, outside the country. And I think what's fascinating and what makes Iraq, I think a bit di- different from other contexts and maybe most definitely Afghanistan is, is the most comparable case, but from other contexts is that there is this real um, you know, coordination and this real reliance on both dissident groups inside the country, especially the Kurds in the North um, after 1991. And at the same time, reliance on dissident elites you know, outside of Iraq, who really in many ways didn't have much legitimacy. And I think what's interesting as we note in the introduction and then in my paper specifically on debathification is that even American policymakers were having, you know, there's a lot of tension that was going on with CENTCOM and with other um, institutions about you know how much do we rely on these expatriate elites and dissident groups inside the country as the main kind of resource and information sharing network of how the post invasion you know governance would 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 go about and i think what's interesting is that in 2003 I, or 2002 um the us sponsored the iraq uh, democratic working group and some of the proceedings of that were published in the journal of democracy and overwhelmingly i think the consensus was that there are things that the US government, both the D, you know DOD and the State Department have to be cautious about in pursuing regime change in Iraq. And specifically this notion of, for example, of getting rid of the Iraqi security forces and the backlash that would have knowing how uh, kind of um, uh, deeply embedded the Iraqi army was at various levels um, from you know the civil service to kind of more sophisticated intelligence agencies. And I think it's this tension that happens between American policymakers on the one hand, and their coordination with these exiled elites that I think in, in many ways makes Iraq a bit unique in comparison to other cases. And of course, that then leads to this very much um, kind of top down, um, vertical approach to how the state will be built from almost like a tabula rasa, right? From a clean slate entirely. And that's kind of not, we see in other places. There's, there's a, there's a build on, building on certain institutions, uh, you know, domestic institutions that happens and then Iraq that, you know, that we don't really see that in that case.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Now, Ruby, you have two questions uh, that I've seen, and there may be more that I'll get to in, in, in the chat. And uh, you've seen at least the first two. One is, um, the role of storytelling in the judiciary, as you know, and uh, uh, and and the second is a technical question about your methodology. What type of stories that you are looking at? Now, my questions to you, I think, it's a fascinating paper that I strongly recommend everyone read. And you 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 say the October Revolution, or the Tashreen movement, used a different type of storytelling, and I think that's a fascinating insight. And you could argue that's a shift in Iraqi. Society, But, of course, there was a lot of othering in the October Revolution storytelling. So I wonder if you could explain to me why the October Revolution storytelling is positive and and how the the people who were othered, if not demonized in their storytelling, must feel about that. So three questions for you. Thank
1: you.
2: Uh, Thank you for the questions. They're all very insightful and are getting me to think. Uh, So uh, the first question about the judiciary, it goes without saying that Iraq needs an apolitical or a non-politicized independent judiciary, which is lacking right now. And um, to to answer that, apart from the uh, depoliticization of the judiciary, we need to. inject a restorative element. Uh, So there's a lot of uh, retributive justice in Iraq. A lot of people, and they say, um, you know, that they want justice, a lot of them think of it in the retributive sense, and they want punishment. It's a very penalizing system. And there needs to be a type of restorative justice, which is popular. It's not um, undesirable in Iraq, by any means. And there are always uh, r- r- sort of uh, a desire for arbitration in different contexts. So there are large scale crimes and there are smaller uh, scale crimes relatively. And uh, this is why we need both uh, you know, uh, punishing or penalizing and restorative uh, types of justice to respond to those different needs. Yes, uh, uh, many people will want uh, punishment uh, that involves uh, prison or the death penalty, which we may or may not agree with um, in Iraq. it is It remains a society that believes in the death penalty. Um, but at the same time, if we can... Uh, promote re- uh, restorative types of justice, where there's a rectification of the wrongs done, uh, where there we can try to build the societal connections and bonds uh, that have been harmed, that have been uh, ruined because of cr- uh, crimes, uh, then we need to promote that. And look at examples from outside Iraq, which uh, are based on restorative uh, elements. Um, in terms of the stories that I use for my paper, there is a range. Uh, I don't focus on particular stories, but um, in the legal system and in the education system, I use examples of how uh, destructive storytelling uh, is used to impose hegemonic narratives that erase Indigenous uh, stories from textbooks and from legal um pedagogy uh, and documentation. So the Iraqi constitution, for example, the preamble um, discusses, you know, it reflects on the oppression and histories of resilience, but it overlooks pockets of the population, such as Assyrians, for example. Um, If you don't include them in the preamble, then they it means they're not being recognized by the state. And if you're not recognized by the state, then how are your rights going to be addressed and catered? So that's one example. Or um, laws in Iraq that impose a Muslim story or identity on some people who are not Muslims, such as Mandians, Kaka'is, Baha'is, et cetera. Um, and in the classroom, you know, uh, his, history textbooks that erase genocide of the Syrians This is one perfect example of how hegemonic narratives can be quite dangerous if they uh, focus on in a destructive sense, glorifying periods of history, which were actually quite dark and need to be addressed in in order for any reconciliation to be truly addressed uh, over time. And Iraq is by no means not unique in the sense, you know, I live in Canada, where there so much needs to be done to promote reconciliation with indigenous people uh, and um, residential schools, etc. So any country with a history of colonization is guilty of this and needs to atone first by addressing the various stories, subjective stories of people who have been traumatized and who have inherited traumas. Uh, so these are all examples of stories that need to be addressed. In terms of uh, Tishrin, uh, the October Revolution, and storytelling, indeed, there are various types of storytelling that take place. So there's the constructive storytelling that crosses ethno-sectarian and socioeconomic lines. And every time I see the slogan "In read or we want a homeland, I always think of it as seeking belonging, not a country. A country is dawla, or... uh, but watan means homeland and homeland by instinctively means belonging and so the people are looking for that they're looking for a society that has not been divided they want a sense of belonging with each other and um but there has been an element of destructive storytelling which began with at the same time of the protest movement with the use of terms like jokeria uh, or jokers to demonize and dehumanize Protesters, And this was used by certain pockets of the population that uh, did not like the protest uh, movement and what it was going for, and it instantly labeled them. So the stigmatization of the other is part of the st- of negative and destructive storytelling. And so that created a pushback from the Tishrinis or uh, protest movement where they were trying to push for their own stories. So there are clashing stories. Um, and there has been a use of derogatory language. So in res- tishrinis. so tishrinis have been called jokeriya, And in response, they have been using the word duyul, which means literally translated means tales. And it is used in reference to people who are loyalists to Iran uh, and to militias. And so there is this negative type of storytelling that is being used. And so this is a good example of how storytelling and language are very significant and can contribute to conflict. And if there is any way we can use storytelling to bring everyone to the same table and promote discourse, then a healthy discourse and listening to each other and listening to the background, behind each person's um, story, then it would help humanize everyone. The problem here is that dehumanization has been taking place. And this is why people have been assassinated and attacked and buildings have been burnt down uh, and expressions of fury. So there's a lot of emotion and emotion is not irrational by any means. It is a response to structural problems, to systemic problems. And so storytelling is part of that.
0: I'll put a pause on there because we need to bring yeah. him in. He's been very Definitely. patient. Ibrahim, um, there's there's a, a couple of questions. There's firstly my original question to you, which is a question I think we all hate getting at the end of our talk. So you're so smart, how would you do it better? So if, um, if uh, security sector reform had been done better after 2003, if the army hadn't been disbanded, if there hadn't been what you called uh, ethno-sectarian uh, exclusion, Uh, would we be in a better place? Would Iraq be more stable? But also there's a question I think you can all three think about, which, of course, is the closest comparative example uh, to central and southern Iraq, which is the Kurdish regional government. Uh, And Ibrahim, if I could ask you to think about what security sector reform may have gone on in the Kurdish region of Iraq under, under the auspices of the Kurdish regional government, and if this might be a model uh, for uh, Iraq more generally, is there a sustainable state building process in the Kurdish regional government? And then while you're answering that, Ibrahim, I'll ask uh, Rubu and Shamran. We've got two other questions uh, coming in. One on the elections, uh, the most recent elections, what may have constrained democratic accountability? And given that we're in the midst of government formation negotiations, uh, we're asked, or whether Mahassassah can ever be eliminated from the Iraqi system. So I'll leave those questions with you. But first, Ibrahim, could it have been done better? And would we have a more stable Iraq? But what what model, if any, does the KRG offer us?
3: Okay, so could it have been I've done better? I think the answer was implicit in your question, Toby, as well as in Shamiran. And it's this, um, if this I think, one of the greatest counterfactuals of what if, if the Iraqi military had not been disbanded. I I think Iraq would be in a different place uh, than it is today. uh, And again, to take your kind of point, that was uh, Paul Bremer's defense, was that the Iraqi military had been, let's not forget the Ba'ath, let's not forget the post-1991 decade, the Iraqi military had been already hollowed out. And I think that his defense is the answer to the question. If the military had been hollowed out, then in essence, it wouldn't have been a threat to the new post-2003 order. So that's why I always find Bremer's defense kind of shooting himself in the foot. It would then, if you had an institution that at least had social capital or uh, had some kind of buy-in by the population, then perhaps if I, if I if it was me the special Republican Guard perhaps maybe at most extreme the Republican Guard could have been demand, disbanded but the regular military should have remained intact given that the coup proofing system under Saddam Hussein had really already emasculated and checked the Iraqi military the Iraqi military have become so alienated from the regime that I think disbanding it, was choosing the wrong institution to make a clean start. In fact, you needed, I think, something from the past to give Iraq a sense of continuity. So that's what I would have done. Uh, Now, in terms of what happened with the KRG, this gets to the other work I cited by Ariel Ahram, who makes the argument learning to live with militias might be the least bad options. And really what was security reform, uh, security sector reform in Iraq was allowing the Peshmerga, the KDP, and the PUK to have uniforms, but more or less be stationed in the territories where they had local buy-in. And in this case, if that's the model, then, uh, and again, if we think of kind of this, if we could go back and bring it to Roba's uh, what has been the story of the various Arab Sunnis is if we could have only have a security force, their so-called their desire for the National Guard, that kind of comes from our community and will protect our community. It's uh, I think this is the key. The, the decentralized military model might be what's happening in Iraq as a de facto system might be the way going forward. It's not... Now, of course, when we talk about the popular mobilization units, uh, I think that's a different matter entirely. And we've seen kind of now the crisis that's emerged between certain popular mobilization units and the recent assassination attempt. Uh, but I think there's something to that model where if uh, having kind of local protection forces, and I think this was the argument that uh, Ahram made, might be the way going forward. Reconstituting a strong centralized Iraqi government of the past seems to be not only invisible, it seems that now this is what I think a current nation needs are security forces that can provide security at the local level. And uh, that's that's what's been elusive since 2003.
0: Thank you, Abhim. Just uh, to follow up on that, I, I suppose so The Kurdish government still has two separate groups of militias run by the two dominant parties and families in the KRG. So I suppose that that raises the question that if we have local protection forces, possibly based on uh, ex-militias, who controls them? How how do we know who subjects them to the rule of law?
3: So, uh, in in other words, it's... um... Really, those Peshmerga forces, what they have is basically more or less the social capital from their past fighting Saddam Hussein. So it's that drawing on their past based on their legitimacy, and that gives them some level of legitimacy. But it's uh who controls them? It's 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 unofficial. In, in a sense, it's really the KDP and the PUK. But they're that central KRG body, a Ministry of Defense that controls both, as well as remember the various intelligence agencies. That are also affiliated with both parties. Uh, that has yet to emerge, and then that's why I think Al Ahram says it's the least bad option. There's local buy-in, but there there is no centralized body to hold them to account. Never mind. And if we talk about kind of protesters, let's not forget there is a protest movement in the KRG, and the various Peshmergas have used violence against various Kurdish protesters, against various Kurdish journalists. There is there is no institution to hold them to account no no Peshmerga force as far as i know particularly the the uh, generals has ever been held accountable for attacking a kurdish journalist in the history of the krg post-2003
0: thank you Ibrahim. right now we're running sadly out of time we could talk about this all, all evening and i'm sure our audience could as well but so we've we've got probably four and if, if we push it a little longer uh, and there are as as you can see um in the chat there are a series of questions but i want to bring it right forward and and so in i'll ask you for each one final intervention before we have to um conclude so i'd like you so we've had we've asked questions about we've been asked questions about the elections of 2021 the most recent elections that have led to this government formation process and and whether they've made any different uh, to electoral accountability whether we could expect a more responsive parliament a parliament more responsive to its electorate and then the question put on the table was um uh, whether can this system, for those of you who don't know this system of uh, the division of state resources amongst the parties through politically sanctioned corruption. Whether this can uh, be be purged from the Iraqi system, and if so, how? We've also had questions that I think. Uh, Ruba has dealt with very well about restorative and transitional justice, but we've also had a question about whether an international criminal tribunal for ISIS fighters might be a step forward. So in your last uh, two or three minutes each, uh, starting with Shemiran, pick up anything you want from that smorgasbord of questions and uh, what would you like to leave, uh, the thoughts you'd like to leave our our very well-informed audience with? Thank you, Shemiran.
1: Thank you so much, Toby. I think just to piggyback on what Ibrahim was saying on, on, on the question of um, uh, governance and the and security in the KRG, I think so much of that, I really don't see much of a difference in terms of how um, the coercive apparatus in the KRG operates at this kind of Uh, almost indiscriminate level. And we've seen that in the deployment of use of force on protesters as we do with militias elsewhere in Iraq. And I think the other question that complicates this local policing is really in the question of the disputed territories. Um, You know, what happens when Yazidis and Assyrians and Turkmen and Shabaks and Kakai, for example, really emphasize uh, decentralized, localized police forces that are not beholden either to the Peshmerga or to the central Iraqi government, but have, you know, coordination mechanisms within them. Um, And so I want to push back a bit on this question that it's the least, you know, worst option that we have, because it depends on who, right, and what communities uh, affected by the dominance of, you know, militias both in the, you know, above the thirty six parallel and below. Um, on the question of the muhasasa system, and I think, Toby, you've done such a good job in the paper at unpacking this and other works um, that's been, you know, fundamental to, all, to our understanding of consociationalism and power sharing in Iraq, which is what muhasasa is. I would argue that we actually haven't seen a full implementation of power sharing. You know, if we think about power sharing as an institutional mechanism that is meant to trickle down, and that is meant to kind of uh, permeate across different horizontal sectors of society at the district level, at the municipal level, at the provincial level, and then at the federal level, power sharing hasn't been implemented. What we saw, and it's part of this kind of incoherence of institutional formation in post 2003 Iraq is that consociationalism and power sharing, consociationalism being informal, but power sharing more specifically was very much elite captured from the onset in that you had governance formation that was tied exclusively to what do the Kurds want, what do the Shias want, and what what room is there for the Sunnis. And I think in that sense, we haven't really seen power sharing as we've seen in other kind of either devolved or confederal systems that we've seen in other places. And so I would argue that, you know, if the hypothetical would have been what would have happened if power sharing was instituted down at the kind of horizontal level across different provinces and districts in Iraq that then would have tied in security sector reform and kind of bound uh, inter-communal interactions within these kind of much more localized institutions, I think we would have seen a different picture. Um, On the question, I think there was one uh, to uh, the question on uh, security and its impact on the uh, on different communities that were excluded. In my interview with General David Petraeus, who led one of the kind of surges in Musul, um, I interviewed him extensively and I asked about this question of debathification and the ways in which the legacies it had uh, and the perceptions it created forced Sunni the Arabs, for example. And it's a quote that I have in my article subverting peace. Um, where he literally says these two orders, so orders one and two, cut, essentially cut our legs from underneath us. In many respects, these orders created fertile fields for the planting of this, uh, the seeds of the Sunni insurgency and extremism. In um, that, you know, and it kind of really spoke to the incoherence and the lack of agreement and coordination of how security sector reform, as Ibrahim Abra- uh, mentioned. Would play out in Iraq, and so I think so much of that early transition set the path for a lot of these institutional and security failures that we're actually seeing. Right, they're not just outcomes of you know ISIS coming up in 2013, 2014, or militias in response to them. There's a process that's led to these failures, um, and that's what I think collectively we try to highlight.
0: Great, thank you, Uh, Ruba. A a couple, uh, a couple of short final thoughts. Uh
2: Storytelling can always be done better. Um, To respond to a previous question uh, about how things could have been better in Iraq, we could have used far less divisive rhetoric and far less divisive storytelling. Um, Iraqi politicians could have done a much better job at uniting people if that was their intent. And language does matter. So there has been recent co-optation of Tishrini language in protests. And that means, this is an example of how you know, uh, language matters because they're using language that has proven to be successful. And so they're using it for different purposes, but because this kind of language is kind of like a template that seems to work to gain people's support, uh, spaces contribute uh, to storytelling process, whether you're outside the green zone or at the Tahrir Square or Habubi Square, Habubi, who fought uh, British colonialism is a symbol of resistance, Tahrir Monument, which is a symbol of resistance and liberation. So these are all parts of the process. Um, As for the Kurdish region using stories of nationhood to gain the people's support, That's one thing that has been taking place there Uh, in different parts of the country, stories have been used to criminalize identities and erase them. Uh, So this is very relevant to the politics, to the legal, to many other components. And um, as for the ICC uh, being used for ISIS uh, fighters uh, to put them on trial, that is an option, uh, though. According to previous experience with the Saddam Hussein trial, many Iraqis would rather have trials on their own soil. So if they are Iraqi uh, nationals who are ISIS fighters, many people would want them to be tried on Iraqi soil. The ICC will never issue death sentences, and many Iraqis, whether we agree with them or not, want the death sentence. Um, the most important component is accompanying all this with restorative practices. I'll, I'll go back to this time and again. We want to make sure that there are parallel um, systems in place to ensure that we are bringing people together, as opposed to just imposing punishments, uh, rectifying wrongs, uh, especially the smaller scale ones. You know, they build up over time. If you rectify this wrong and that wrong while holding um, those accountable for larger crimes, if you get all this done, you know, uh, parallel to each other, we can slowly move towards something more sustainable over the longer term. Uh, As opposed to, uh, sorry, with regards to Iraq being unique, I think Iraq is unique uh, in terms of its pluralism by indigeneity. Uh, Many countries today are pluralistic through migration. Uh, Iraq is pluralistic through its indigeneity. There are many indigenous populations in Iraq, and that is part of Iraq's beauty. And I think if we emphasize minorities' rights in Iraq and their stories and bring them to the forefront, we're more likely to bring everyone else's stories uh, to the table and allow more engaging, listening practices and storytelling practices that contribute to proper legislation and policy making and uh, building better textbooks to promote better knowledge and culture production for future generations who will know how to better fight suppression and uh, come together in the forms of political oppositions that cross ethno uh, confessional uh, lines. Uh, they wouldn't be uh, sect based political parties they would actually cross all that and engage in more powerful storytelling and bring that to parliament and legislation
0: thank you very much ibrahim we're now out of time so i'll leave you with a, a couple of minutes to sum up uh what do you want to say to tell everyone why they should read your article in this uh, special edition of intervention and state building and to send us home with a couple of thoughts
1: ibrahim
3: well, we, we, we began this uh, presentation looking at the events that led to kind of the collapse of the state and its institutions. Uh, if you would read my article and compare it to the news uh,
2: going on in Iraq in the present, uh, it's quite amazing and given the, the rise of militias,
3: the, the horror of uh, ISIS, that the military, despite its ups and downs, has finally emerged as one institution. According to the latest surveys done in Iraq, that does have some kind of national buy-in. And perhaps that's uh, something we can leave on a positive note, that while you do have corruption at the state level, uh, you know, low turnout during the elections, uh, notwithstanding the disbanding of the Iraqi military, you do have at least some kind of institution that on some level various Iraqi sects and ethnicities can now rally behind, one of the few options they have.
0: Excellent, thank you. Um, Well, thank you everyone for uh, turning up today to listen to our three excellent speakers. I would again thank Shemaran Mako for uh, bringing together the set of incredibly rich, and thought-provoking papers in the Journal of Intervention and State Building, fifteen-four available for you to buy or in a library near you, certainly in the LSE Library, University of London Library, London libraries across London and the world. You can read these wonderful articles. I suppose the, the discussion today and a lot of the discussions on Iraq have centred around what's the original sin, what was the one mistake that should have been rectified, and I think all three of us excellent speakers have pinpointed uh, one big issue. And and for me, the big issue is at the end of that decade of intervention, uh, starting uh, in the aftermath of uh, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, where the the United Nations uh, resolution that allowed Iraq to be pushed out of Kuwait, then there was a series of interventions after that in the aftermath of the Cold War, uh, the vast majority of which weren't very successful. It strikes me that the invasion of Iraq um, was it was the pinnacle of imperial hubris. The idea that somehow you could hammer uh, a universal model onto a country that no one who ordered the invasion, pursued it or imposed it, had a great deal of knowledge about, strikes me as pure folly. And I think we should never forget almost 20 years after that act of imperial hubris and folly, that the Iraqi population are the still still the ones suffering. Now they're suffering under corruption militias violence no rule of law to speak of at all Uh, and 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 that has been unleashed on them firstly obviously by 35 years of Ba'athist rule and now by nearly 20 years of a sclerotic and corrupt elite that took power after 2003 so i think uh uh, a, a moment of thought for what that population has suffered under in the worst of possible worlds going through it's probably a fitting end to this so i'd like on that rather depressing note i'd like to thank our three speakers who were superb and again Shamiran for bringing us all together in that special edition i'd like to say uh to our audience apologies for running a little bit over time but you can pick up this debate Uh, between the covers of the journal Intervention and State Building, which I thoroughly recommend you do. And then uh, please keep an eye on the uh, Middle East Centre website uh, for the next event uh, in a very rich rich diet of programmes uh, that the Centre has put on. And hopefully we'll be able to invite you back in person to the London School of Economics' excellent campus sometime in the new year. Thank you very much and thanks to our speakers. Goodbye.